So I'm reading Henry Ford's biography right now and I thought he had an interesting approach to how he thought about business that could be summarized as, you know, market product process. The idea that first you need to focus on your market, who's gonna who's gonna be buy your 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 product, then you gotta focus on the product yourself and that could expand to services depending on what you're in and make the product as good as possible before you worry about know marketing funding finance all that type of stuff how good is your product and then what is the process of making your product and how can you make that more efficient over time and you know his focus on the market with with the model T was on expanding his market by creating a product not innovating a ton but once he had a good product that people wanted, focusing on the manufacturing process in order to drive down the cost as much as possible to then expand his market. So you can see for a, a product like the automobile, how that's a virtuous cycle. You know, you focus on, on the market, which at first wasn't gonna be very big because he had a, you know, famous saying that if I ask people what they wanted, they say a, a faster horse. You know, initially people probably weren't thinking they wanted the automobile, but he made a spectacular product that people were really interested in. Well, you know, you've got a great product, but then how can you expand your market? Well, then you can focus on the process. So by driving efficiency and driving down the amount of labor that it took to create the Model T. And it's interesting how he focuses on process, even things like, you know, instead of slamming a chisel harder, can we make a sharper chisel and give it a light tap? So it's interesting how he thought about, you know, making his process more efficient, but how can you make your process more efficient to drive down the cost of your product while retaining the same quality so that you can expand and increase your market. And that has a, an application for so many different businesses in terms of how do you gain market share. I think the easiest one to translate it to right now would be Tesla, which if you look at the market, you know, there's not a gigantic market for electric car buyers right now. Why is that? Well, number one, you know, altruism, because people think it's it's you know better for the environment only goes so far when the cost of the car is significant you know it used to be that a tesla you know and i don't even know what they cost right now but would cost well over a hundred thousand dollars well that's not much of a market but what henry ford would say is if you design a good product and then you can work on creating it more efficiently without sacrificing quality, you can drive the cost down. And what Tesla is betting on is that they can drive the cost of producing their electric cars down while retaining the same quality because they are essentially a luxury, a luxury car manufacturer and that's what makes them different. Well, if you take that back to the Model T, the Model T was ridiculously expensive at first. I think it cost $25,000 and then the price got driven down and down and down and down. And even though it was essentially the same car, it was a more efficiently made car that could be sold to a much wider market. So it's a virtuous cycle of the market expands 
as you develop and create a great product and you can manufacture it more cheaply. So it's just interesting that, you know, Ford really thought of it as simply in those terms. And, you know, that obviously doesn't work for, for every single product, but it does work for a lot. I mean, even the iPhone, you know, when that first came out, it was expensive and a lot of people could, couldn't afford it, but it's come down in terms of, of price and, and there's been other things, but it's gone way up in terms of efficiency, in terms of features, while retaining the same general functions that it's always had. So just an interesting thing to think about and, and some business wisdom from, uh, from Henry Ford. I wanted to discuss the Boston Consulting Group strategy palette. Now this comes from the book, Your Strategy Needs a Strategy. And I think it's a really good way of thinking about the diverse needs of business in the context of strategy. You know, Boston Consulting Group, their, their kind of go-to strategy um, from the 70s is, uh, and, and, and before that, um, the, the experience curve is kind of like as you gain scale, you can drive down price, pass those along to the customer, protect market share. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of a classic strategy that also falls in line with kind of Michael Porter's five forces. Um, you know, those are classic strategies, but they aren't right for every business. And what the strategy palette goes into from, again, the book, Your Strategy Needs a Strategy, is that there's really four main strategies for a healthy business and then a renewal strategy for times where the business is in a harsh environment and needs a course correction. So the four strategies are the classical strategy, which I kind of just alluded to, the visionary, the adaptive, and the shaping. And those are all a quadrant that depends on two two spectrums or two axes and one of those axes is the malleability of a business meaning how how much can you change your business environment and then how predictable is your business environment so imagining this like an xy graph imagine the y-axis is the unpredictable nature of your business and the x-axis is the malleability or how much can you change your business so at the bottom left of the quadrant is businesses where they're totally predictable and you can't really change things. So that's where the classical strategy comes in. You know, lower your costs through economies of scale, pass that along to customers in, in exchange for more market share and grow that way. That's kind of the cash cow business that uh, Bruce Henderson of the Boston Consulting Group uh, constantly talks about. Um, and, that, and that's what you're looking to do. You're looking to be a market leader, you know, probably number one or number two in a market and maintain that market share through, through cost savings, part of which are passed along to your shareholders, but a lot of which are passed along to your customers. So what if, what if your market is unpredictable, but you can't really change things? So what about like a, a software consulting firm? Software changes all the time. It's totally unpredictable what direction it's going to go. If you're a software consultant, you, you can't predict at the beginning of 2021 what 2022, you know, what your consulting is going to look like. Well, 
It's an unpredictable environment and you can't really change that. So you need an adaptive strategy for unpredictable environments where you can't really, really change that. Um, and that's a, a strategy where you're gonna have to come up with constant innovation in order to deal with the unpredictable nature of your, of your particular business line, okay? So moving along, let's go to the bottom right of this four strategy quadrant I've been talking about. Let's say your business is predictable, but you can change it. Well, that's where a visionary might come in. Let's let's look at Steve Jobs. This is a great example. So let's let's look at the iPod as it as it initially came in. It's pretty predictable that people are gonna listen to music. What's visionary is getting all that music in one place on one player that you can't play on another player. CDs, you know, you could buy a Sony, you could buy a, a Panasonic, you could buy whatever. Your iPod, you're not buying any of those because it's all there. And then extend, extend that one step further to the iPhone. That's a visionary. It's a very predictable demand, pr predictable market, but you can change it. And that's where the visionary approach comes in. Well, what about the top right of the qu quadrant where it's an extremely changeable environment and it's extremely unpredictable? So that's where you're gonna look to shape your, you're gonna look to a shaping strategy. So let's let's look at the retail clothing environment. You think at the beginning of 2021, you have any idea what 2022 is gonna look like? No, but you can change it a lot through marketing, through buying, through, through uh, buying appropriately. And that's kind of a retail clothing environment. It's extremely unpredictable, but you can change it a lot. And that's, you're gonna develop a shaping strategy. You're gonna wanna shape what you're gonna sell through your marketing approach. You're gonna wanna act quickly in order to adapt to new styles as they come up. And that's kind of your, your, your retail clothing, your shaping strategy. Well, the fifth kind of strategy that the BCG Color Boston Consulting Group color palette goes over is the, uh, the the renewal strategy, excuse me. So what if your business is just taking a nosedive and you're just kind of throwing up your hands to protect, protect yourself? You're in a renewal strategy. You're gonna cut costs significantly, focus on cash flow, and get yourself in a position where you can get back to one of these strategies and move from there. So that's the renewal strategy. It's a strategy in and of itself, but you can't stay in renewal forever. You can't cut costs forever to profitability. You can't manage cash flow forever to profitability. You'll eventually go out of business. So you do need to get back into one of those other four strategies. The classical strategy where it's predictable and you can't really change things. The visionary where it's predictable, but you can change things. The adaptive approach where it's an extremely unpredictable environment and you can't really change things. And then the, the, uh, the, the shaping environment where it's unpredictable and you can change things. So want to get from the renewal environment to one of those four as quickly as is feasible. So those are the five strategies under the Boston Consulting Group uh, strategy palette that are in the book, your strategy needs a strategy. I think it's a real cool way of thinking at things and you know, depends on where you are in your business, but that's a good way of, of looking at, at strategy from a general perspective.
Okay, another article or another uh, vlog about uh, an article in the Boston Consulting Group on Strategy Book, um, which again, I'm finding fascinating. Uh, I want to go over a part in an article. This article is called um, Strategy and the New Economics of Information by Philip B. Evans and Thomas S. Worcester. It was written in 1997. I did a little about this article um, earlier um, in terms of um, exchange of information um, and how, and this was the one I did about, you know, the Encyclopedia Britannica and kind of what its downfall in terms of, you know, Encarta came along and took the inferior Funk and Wagnalls magazine and made it commercially viable. And I talked a little about rich richness versus reach, but I wanted to kind of go into that a little more in depth today. And there's another section in the article about it. So richness versus reach is something that is a very interesting concept. And it's, it's traditionally thought of as a trade-off. So richness would be the robustness of information you're trying to communicate. So, and, and they, they have this in three things, uh, three aspects rather. So the first is bandwidth. And they say the amount of information that could be moved from a sender to a receiver in a given time. So think of this as, you know, they, they say a stock quote is narrow band and a film is broadband. So remember this was 97 before those narrow broadband had a, has a different connotation now. But think of it like a stock quote, you know, what is IBM worth today? It's a small amount of information in terms of total bite size, think of it in terms of what you would need to store that information. A film, much more size in terms of the sheer volume of information. So that's part of richness is let's think of it as what is the volume of the information that you're trying to transfer. Um, another one is customization. So they give the idea of a TV ad. It's not customized, it's one TV ad, you make it, but you can distribute it over a broad variety of spectrums. Uh, a physical conversation, a sales pitch, can be totally customized. Whenever you're selling anything to anyone, you know you're going to customize that sales pitch depending on who you're who you're talking to. And then the third one is <coughs> they mentioned interactivity. So how much of it is a dialogue, meaning one person talking to another, talking back, gaining information? If you think about a sales pitch, is a dialogue, right? Whereas an advertisement is a monologue. You're just saying what you're saying and hopefully it, it, it conveys to them. So that's richness is like, what's the robustness of the information that you're trying to transfer? Reach is how easily does it get to people? And think of it this way, like a sales pitch, a conversation, it's usually one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, maybe you can do like a seminar, but even a seminar, it gets less customized. A customized sales pitch has to be delivered one-on-one. -on -one. Whereas a, an advertisement, a TV commercial, a Super Bowl commercial can reach millions and millions of people at one time, but it's not the, the amount of information is not as robust. That's why with Super Bowl commercials, they spend so much money trying to get the perfect Super Bowl commercial because they want it to be extra rich to get that extra, as it gets that extra reach. And that's, that's obviously a challenge and hard to do. So traditionally, the more robust your information, the more rich, the more richness, the less reach you would have. And the less rich the information, the more reach. The less robust the information, the more reach you would have. 
Well, so let's kind of go through, you know, a little of this. In general, the communication of rich information has required proximity and dedicated channels whose costs or physical constraints have limited the size of the audience to which the information can be sent. So let, let's take stocks. So in the 70s and before that, you'd have stockbrokers who would have individual conversations recommending a very limited amount of stocks. Because if you're a stockbroker, you can't research that many companies. Fast forward to nowadays, you know, think of the sheer volume of information I have on my brokerage account online where I'm not even talking to a person. I'm just researching the information. A ton of information that it's, it's not as much reach. It's not that customized for me. I'm looking at the same thing you're looking at. And I'm not having an individual conversation, but I value that they, they put enough information there for me and millions of other users of these online platforms and they're getting reach even though it's not quite as robust. And that's kind of a traditional example of that, of that, um, of that trade-off. Now, brokerage houses are much more profitable because those one-on-one -on -one conversations, they are incredibly expensive to have. If you think about brokerages, they have to have physical locations, they have to have stock brokers who they're paying and paying commissions to, and they have to have you know uh, administrative assistants, they have to have compliance officers, a lot of stuff going on there to deal with the sheer richness of that information that they're trying to convey. And now that they're more able to get reach and get that information out across the internet cheaper, they're able to do it much, much less expensively, which is driving up profits. Brokerage houses are much more profitable now than they, than they ever were. That being said, some of those profit margins are being drawn down and legacy companies that have, you know, expensive sales forces, a lot of stockbrokers, they're having trouble because they got to pay the stockbrokers, pay rents and all of that. So you see that model shifting and you see it in, in brokerage houses where, you know, now the customized approach is really done at the private bank level. So, you know, you'll have a, um, you know, customers have, have minimum account sizes where it's going to be, you got to have 2 million bucks with us and we're going to charge a percentage of your assets. So we're going to make, you know, $30,000 a year before we're even going to talk to you because, you know, we, the brokerage house has to cover our accounts. And that's why private banks have have been where really the customized, you know, one-on-one -on -one approaches have really gone. And I know a lot of the internet companies, they say they're giving custom portfolios and stuff like that. They're not. It's, it's all very, very cookie cutter stuff, but that's fine because they're focused on gaining more reach. When you gain more reach, traditionally you can't have as much robustness in the information you're trying to deliver that richness. Um, a company's marketing mix, for example, is determined by the appropriate resources according to this trade-off. That's the richness versus reach trade-off. A company can embed in its message an advertisement, a piece of customized direct mail, or a personal ad pitch. So let's look at those. An advertisement in a magazine. Ton of reach, right? Because you get all the magazine subscribers. A, a advertisement on a commercial. Ton of reach because you get all of the um, people who are watching the TV. It's not very rich, it's not customized, um, it's a very cookie cutter approach, and that might be fine for what you're trying to do. Customized piece of direct mail, um, it's funny, in 97 when they were doing this, people were probably amazed when 
mail mail merge with Microsoft Word even would have been very new back then. And so, you know, getting a a form sales letter with your name in there would have seemed, you know, would have seemed very, very cutting edge. Nowadays, you know, customized direct mail. Well, actually, an example nowadays, you know, when you receive a, um, uh, an ad from uh, direct mail from a realtor, often they'll have a picture of your house in front of there because they'll, you know, mail merge will take pictures from the MLS of your house and actually merge it onto the envelope or the, um, the ad that they're sending you. So that's an example of customized direct mail. But you know, then you, your advertisement advertising could be those direct one-on-one sales pitches, which we talked about with brokerage houses or with Encyclopedia Britannica, the old Encyclopedia Britannica salespeople. Again, the more rich that information, the more legacy companies are in danger of having bloated, expensive sales distribution systems. And that's kind of what the article is is talking about that trade-off again between richness and reach. So one of the things the article starts to talk about is the effects on technology. And it's funny that this was back in 97, so they couldn't have foreseen, you know, where we're going. But what I, what, you know, my theory about this is, is the value of tech companies is often how much reach can they get with extremely rich information. And the more you kind of eliminate that trade-off, the more valuable tech companies are. So, you know, sometimes, and I think initially what what tech was doing was down the the richness chart, things that weren't extremely rich but had some sort of customization, they were able to deliver on on mass. Um, You know, a good example would be... uh, Amazon's original, originally as a bookstore, right? And I talked about in a previous example, they had more books than the largest bookstore in America. So they had a lot of robustness, a lot of richness to their catalog of books, but they were able to get a great amount of reach. And because they could go online and people slowly quit buying at bookstores and started buying at Amazon. So their reach was, was better and they had a more robust product than bookstores. And that's where you see those disruptors that um, that kind of completely take out a certain segment. So I think what I'm trying to get across is, you know, when you find a a strategy where you're able to get more rich than a certain market segment, but have even more reach, that's where you see real disruptive things. Um, let's talk about the ultimate disruptor, Uber. Um, the the reason it, it it did so well is, you know, first of all, with an app where you can have an on-demand taxi, you know, that's certainly more reach than the old method of a taxi. In major cities, you, you might flag down a taxi, you know, in New York, Chicago, San Francisco, not really LA because it was so spread out. Or you may be at a taxi-rich environment like a, a, a nightclub or something like that where at certain times taxis would come through. Other than that, you'd have to call a taxi dispatch service and they could be there 30 minutes later. You know, think about what happens with Uber. I don't care where you are. I, I was at a, our, our hunting lease a couple of weeks ago and some of the people who are staying out there, other people on the lease, this is in the middle of, the middle of Texas, you know, 45 minutes away from Waco is the, is the nearest major city. 
they they got on on their phone and got an Uber ride to a concert that was 30 minutes away in the middle of the country. There's no taxis that are going to the middle of the country in central Texas. It's just not happening. So it has just an extreme amount of reach. And let's compare its robustness to, to taxis. Taxis, when I think of taxis, especially like, you know, your New York City taxi, what do you think of? It's, you know, not very customized. It's dirty inside. They're old cars. Think about Uber. I mean, you know, mainly late model cars. They have rules and restrictions that they have to have late model cars. The The drivers are graded. You don't have grading of taxi drivers because you know, you're not going to get the same taxi driver more than once. You're having grades of, of Uber drivers so you know like before you order it how good the driver is and make it, making sure it's a clean, you know, nice car. So it's a much more rich service than your traditional taxi as well. And that's why it's so disruptive. You know, just think of other ones. Um, Google, you know, extreme reach. I mean, Google is a verb, right? You, you, when, when you want to find something on the, inter on the internet, you Google it. And how rich is that? I mean, Google, you have all the information you could ever need at your, food, at your fingertips. Same with another Google product, YouTube, in terms of videos. You know, gigantic volumes of videos, um, just mind-boggling, that have reach all over, the, all over the world. So, you know, it strikes in my mind that, and this would be, you know, if you're investing in startups and, and tech companies, something to think about is what is their richness versus reach and how rich are they while still getting the reach afforded by, you know, the internet where, you know, transferring information is essentially costless. So I, I really think like when evaluating tech companies, that's something you should be thinking of. Um, so here's an example of something else I talked about, you know, probably last week was, you know, uh, electric cars. Uh, how robust are they? Getting more and more like normal cars and probably, you know, Better, better duration and, you know, maybe cheaper in terms of overall cost of driving those cars compared to gas. The reach is a challenge for them right now. You know, you don't have as many electro electric charging stations as you do gas stations. With these hydrogen cars, you, you have no infrastructure to deliver those. Those could come over time, but that's the challenge with those companies, I think, is they've got to solve the richness versus reach problem product. They've first of all got to become richer, richer, you know, more robust than the current automobile. You know, you can't have electric cars that drive worse or look worse or are less comfortable than your average cars. That's why Tesla is so successful. Their cars look better. Um, they're very comfortable and they operate and perform very well compared to your gas powered cars. So you got to have that. And then you need the reach in terms of um, you know, the, the infrastructure necessary to charge these cars. And also in terms of price, you know, you can't reach is going to be, you know, how much can you drive that cost down to even less than a normal car? So people wonder when electric cars are going to take over the world. Well, you know, it's, it's not going to be until they're cheaper to operate yet better in terms of performance, style, comfort, all of that than traditional cars. And that's just the, the, the truth. And I would assume that that happens at some point. And, you know, when you're betting on these, these startup car companies, you're betting that they're going to solve that problem quicker. So that's the richness versus reach, you know, thing that I think 
when you evaluate any tech company now, you have to really think about. But again, you know, this is a 1997 article in this book that has just extreme applications today. So I really recommend you get a copy of this book and read the articles because I'm going to continue to do little, uh, little vlogs about them.